Hello everyone and welcome to a new episode of Thinking Aloud about film. I've lured Richard into my Fassbinder obsession. So we've been doing a few Fassbinder films. We've also talked about Francois Ozon's obsession with Fassbinder. Uh, he's done two films that relate to Fassbinder. One a remake of Petra von Kant, Peter von Kant. And this, Water Drops on Burning Rocks, which is based on a play that Fassbinder wrote when he was 19, but that remained unproduced in his lifetime. So, Richard, what, what did you think of this one? I quite enjoyed it. I had seen it before. It came out about 2000. I saw it around that time. Watching it again now, having seen a few Fassbinder films recently, it became very clear that this is someone trying to essentially make a pastiche of of the look of a Fassbinder film, I think. I quite enjoyed it. Perhaps I would have preferred to see a Fassbinder film. Yes. For me, it's clear, you know, because I've been systematically exploring Fassbinder's films. If a copy exists with English subtitles, I, I have seen it. I've still got a few more to go. But up to the point of Desire and The Marriage of Maria Brown, I have now seen everything available. And Ozon is simply not a patch on Fassbinder. Uh, as a filmmaker. I can appreciate his enthusiasm for Fassbinder though because I share it. And one of the things that I found very valuable about the experience of watching this film is, I mean, can you imagine a 19-year-old writing this? That's what to me is extraordinary. In terms of Ozon, it's perhaps worth pointing out this was only his third feature. I'd forgotten it was so early in his career, but he he made a load of shorts and then before this, the two features were sitcom and criminal lovers. Mm. To put it in context of Ozon's career, it's 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 very early, actually very early in his career, to do something that's so obviously an homage to another director. So yes. that's quite that's quite interesting. It's not up to Fassbinder. It's a bit annoying because you can see exactly what he's trying to do to make it look like Fassbinder. I think. So can you tell us a story? It has echoes of some of the other films. I think it starts off with this older gay man who's about 50, arrives back at his flat with a younger man who's 20 or so, who he's he's picked up in the street while while the younger man was waiting for his girlfriend. It's a pretty much a straight translation of the stage plays. It's, it's even split into acts. So that act one is those two in the flat, and it, and it ends with the, the older guy having taught the younger guy to bed. Then the next act is six months later. They're still living in the flat together. They're starting to argue the older man is getting very frustrated. And there seems to be a bit of a creepy role play going on between the two of them in terms of like daddy-son type mm. of thing, I think. Later, again, it's a bit further on again, and the the boy's former girlfriend turns up while the older guy's away. They get together. Then the final act, the older guy comes back. His ex-lover appears as well. Everyone switches partners and and it ends tragically. <laughs> yeah. I liked it very much. And I thought, my God, and I don't use this word lightly, but I do think that you see the genius of Fassbinder. As you said, the first act is this 50-year-old picks up this 20-year-old on the street. You get all these little tensions. It's inevitable, but it's also unclear. There's this tension. You know, the guy talks about his girlfriend. Is he straight? You know, he talks about leaving. The other guy talks about having lived with a woman for seven years. You know that the older man is trying to seduce the younger one. But is the younger one seducible? On the other hand, if he's not, what is he doing there? 
Is he regretting it? Is he really straight? The scene has all these tensions. When we talked about Beware of the Holy Hall, all that kind of fluid sexuality, because that that's very clear here. That, yes. As you say, is the younger man gay or straight or bi? Is the older man gay? The woman he says he was living with, we later find out, is, is trans. And everything keeps switching around. You know, by the, by the end, the older man is having a threesome with the two women. And it's worth noting that this idea of this man who falls so in love with this other man, and the man says, if you were a woman, I'd marry you. And he takes that as a cue to just go to Casablanca and have a sex change operation, is an idea that will be taken up later in, in the year of 13 moons. I don't actually know if that was in Fassbinder's original play, or if it's something that Ozon inserted into the adaptation. There's a couple of productions of the play on Vimeo in German with no subtitles but I kind of skimmed through and it, it looks to me the film is is a very very direct translation of the, of the play so I'd be surprised if the trans thing would have been added by Ozon. The thing that you mentioned about the fluidity of sexuality is so interesting in the film because the young man talks about how kissing another man disgusts him because he's a man yeah, on the other hand you know he enjoys sex with his girlfriend and thinks that it gives her pleasure, but it's not a big deal for him, right? He's more interested in art and so on. And then yeah. in the second act, you see him basically becoming a slave to this older man. Mm. And a lot of it is to do with sex. You know, he finds himself completely in love, you know, having experiences that he's never experienced and completely subservient to this older man. And the fantasy that you mentioned, the power games, the, the sexual role play is actually comes from a fantasy of the younger man that he had this dream that one of his mother's boyfriends jumped into bed with him yeah who had what is it, muscular thighs or something jumped into bed with him and treated him like a woman and you know after it was all over stayed on top of him as if he were a woman yeah but, yeah and so this fantasy gets reenacted several times and what's interesting is that the older man does it as a kind of a power play and a domination and then the younger man does it later on to his girlfriend but but also the younger man does it to the older man so at the end of the second act the, the younger man appears wearing the wearing the coat yeah it's a really interesting thing in relation to fassbinder's career in the sense that what you get in this film is something that you rarely get later on which is this complete submersion in love but what you also get is all the dangers of that, the self-erasure, the S&M kind of dynamic, the using, yeah, because the thing about the older man is he inevitably whores out for money all his partners. Yeah, right? yeah. yeah. So with the young man, he has this conversation, so it never happens, but he says, you know, you can get extra pin money by doing this, right? Mm. And then you realize later that he's done it to his previous partner, and that he's already proposed it to Franz's girlfriend, Anna, who he's now having sex with. The other thing in, with, with the older man, reminiscent of Fox and his friends, that when, when you first see him, he's clearly fairly rich, fairly successful, and a little bit like you, you, you initially think of um, Karl Heinz Baum in, in Fox and his friends, for instance. But then it becomes clear later that you know, he, he's, a, I think, an insurance salesman, but actually that means he's a swindler. Yeah. You know, he, he's he swindled some old guy out of his life savings and, and the old guy 
kills himself. And it tr- turns out that that's pretty much what this guy does. Is he yeah. just goes around getting people's savings from them. And he blames the younger man for losing his touch. Either ever since they've been in a relationship, obviously he doesn't find swindling others as easy as he did before. I do find that amazing for a 19-year-old to be kind of so lucid, so clear-eyed, so aware of personal dynamics in relationships, of power plays, of, you know, the quotidian things of just getting coffee and making a, you know, how, how much those things are present. When I was 19, I was just thinking of love and sex. I mean, I wasn't thinking about power dynamics. <laughs> I was just thinking of, like, you know, falling in love. If any character in the film is based on Fassbinder, it has to be the younger man, right? The way that character develops is not the same as what happens with Box and his friends. But that young man being picked up by older, richer people is what happens to the Fassbinder character in Fox and his friends. Well, there's a reversal of that, actually, because the thing is that in Fox and his friends, France, who's also called France, I believe, is working class, marginal. I mean, he works in an amusement park. He's really like practically like sub, you know, marginal, really. Whereas in this one, it's clearly a middle-class boy who loves theater and music and art and, you know, he conducts symphonies for release, right? Like you see in the film, right? So I think the class element is really reversed here. Yeah, and he's been to boarding school as well. And he's been to boarding school. Key thing that he talks about his experiences, fumblings there. It feels very autobiographical. Yeah. Because, you know, there's that whole scene where he says, oh, my parents divorced when I was five or six. I went to boarding school. I love my mother, but really kind of more as a friend. We get along more as friends. Her, her new husband can't stand me. Like, that's all biographical. That is all okay. you know, what we know of, of Fassbinder, right? And of course, the thing about Fassbinder is, you know, that he was middle class. His father was a doctor, a medical doctor, right? And his mother was the translator of Truman Capote. Right, right. right. So even though he's, he's always dealing with characters like Fox, rather than his friends, he himself belongs to the other class of the friends, the other people who know about music and literature and furniture. (laughs) 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 One of the things that I actually kind of like very much about Ozone's film is that it's simultaneously a play, and I'm actually very interested by this idea because one sees it in Fassbinder as well. Yeah, there's something as theatrical that it's a play that you know, there's no attempt to break out of it or to go on the street or... And on the other hand, it's quite cinematic. Yeah, you have these views of dollies and zooms and yeah, the camera work. It does explicitly split itself into acts with, with Act 1, Act 2 captions. And it's all set within the apartment. As you say, there's ed- interesting editing, there's time jumps and so on. I mean, it's not filmed like something like Rope or something where it's filmed continuously or like the kind of National Theatre Live type yeah, films of stage plays that, that, are, that, that are, it's visually interesting enough to be a film. It can't be just using the script of the play because you would expect the script of the play to be like continuous in time for each act because it's all one. Each act appears to be one scene. In the film, it kind of there are there are time jumps and, and jumps between different sets and that kind of thing. It's a direct film of the play, but it does interesting enough things visually. I think to make it not just a filmed record of a play. I mean, basically my feeling about this is that cinema can be anything, right? And, and it can be many different kinds of things. And this is clearly a theatrical film, film theater in a way, right? But with the accent on film, 
And it's not like those lazy filmed plays where somebody just plonks the camera, you know, in the proscenium arch and on the sides and then intercuts between them. So these are theatrical films in which a camera move still means something. The set design is designed for the camera yeah, and not for a theater yeah, yeah, and so yeah. on, right? Because I really hate, you know, those, those broadcast film things. Um, I think, like, well, like you say, it's, it's neither one nor the other and you get the, the worst of both worlds. And worse than that, you give people the impression that they've seen something, mm. which actually they've seen something else and something very inferior. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> One of the things that I liked was the music. I really liked the, the use of music, both the sort of classical music and then kind of kitschy Euro pop songs. There's a great dance routine. And I, I, I remember when I first saw the film, the, the trailer uses the dance routine. In fact, well, there is one trailer that's just the dance routine. And I think people going to see the film perhaps expected that that, that almost is this going to be a musical? But, but actually, that's only one fairly brief scene. But it's a great, it's a great dance scene. A pet peeve around that is with the subtitles because actually I find it annoying and actually rather typical Ozon. He makes no effort to translate the lyrics which are mainly in German into French or into English. There are no subtitles for any of the songs which are very important. The lyrics of the songs are very important to the narrative. Yeah, and there's, there's also there's a sequence where the the younger guy is quoting a, a Henry German. Hein, or right. Hein, I, the yeah, and, and that's not translated. I read the production notes that come with the DVD, and Ozon said he did it deliberately. I mean, he didn't mention the subtitles issue, but he said that French people weren't used to German, that they hated the sound of German, that for them it's a historical memory of the war and occupation and so on. And that nonetheless, he was an exchange student in Hamburg, right? And so for him, German is very beautiful and so on. And yeah, he made it a point to use those German songs and so on, right? He wanted to have a French audience be aware of that language. Because actually, I can't quite remember offhand what this song is, but the song they dance to is actually a German version of a French song, isn't it? Or I heard it in Spanish and in Italian. Uh, Rafaela Carrera does a fantastic version That's, of it. Yes, yeah, yeah. So it's not. It, so it's possibly not even a German pop song. It's just a song being. It's a pop song being sung in German. So yeah. I think it's perverse and arrogant and inconsiderate of his audience. If if the text is significant enough to include in the film, it's significant enough for for all audiences to understand it, not just those who speak German. Right? Yeah. It seems yeah. to me like absurd. Otherwise. Um, so I thought that was like, you know, a niggle with the film. I like the performers very much. I actually like the cinematic treatment of it very much. I thought it was very well told. It had its, its rhythms. It had a kind of a playfulness. Fassbender would have made it much harsher. I, I think that's right. It was kind of quite kitsch. I, would, I think I would describe it as yeah. Yeah, deliberately so. It had that slight problem that watching a, a film made now or, or in 2000, set in the 60s or the 70s has, or probably film made now set in the 80s, that everything on screen screams out, you know, 1973 to you, you know, 
the, the bathroom, the, the crockery, the, all of the furniture, all of the clothes. Whereas in reality, I mean, you know, not everything in my flat was made in 2022. You know, it's kind of, in fact, nothing in my flat was made in 2022. <laughs> um, you know, the idea that if you're filming the 70s now, everything looks like the 70s. But if you watch some, well, you, you watch a fast bit of the film, you watch Fox and his friends, everything in Fox and his friends was not made in the 1970s, if you see what I mean. Uh, but, but I think that's a it deliberately plays that up, I think. You know? Well, yes, I mean, I think, again, you know, this is from the production notes, which I'm making it sound like a big deal, but it's really like five paragraphs, right, as an extra. <laughs> 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 it's not, you know, they have, Artificial Eye wasn't very generous with the extras to water drops and burning rocks. But it says that he deliberately wanted to make it 1970s because the 1970s was a period of openness and fluidity and you know, ideas kind of circulating and ideas about sexuality kind of circulating, right? And kind yeah, of, yeah. You know, so that the period to him is very important in the film. It's, it's a reasonable decision, and it's presumably, well, when was it written? Sort of, I guess, late 60s? It would, it would have been written in mid-60s. Yeah, yeah. So, okay, so so actually he's he's set it sort of 10 years or so later, but... But but yeah, it's a, it's a, you got to set it somewhere. It's a reasonable decision. The, the the productions of the play I could find online. What one looked like it was set in the eighties. One mm. one just looked like it was a very minimal, uh, with no no particular time period, which which is interesting. And I think the certainly the tone of the stage versions I found looked a lot harsher. Roson has kind of played up the kitsch here, I think. Since you mentioned his age. You know, I looked it up just to be sure, and he was born in 1945, so it means he wrote this play in 1964, right? Can you imagine? I mean, I really find that gobsmacking, right? So first his youth, yeah. right? But, you know, his ideas on sexuality and power dynamics and transsexuals, and in 1964, I mean, where was he getting them as a 19-year-old? I mean, I... So there's, there's perhaps a version of this film could be made where it's like... 1962 in Hamburg, and the the boy that's brought home is John Lennon. Yeah, <laughs> I'd love to see that. Film. <laughs> and I'll say, you know, to be fair to Ozon, because I'm I'm feeling I'm very begrudging, but actually I like this film very much, and I was very glad to see it. Yeah, yeah. And actually, I think it is kind of also an important component in a fastbinder of yeah. I think you're right. You know, it, it, as, as you say, it's, it's, it's something he wrote very early. I presume he wrote it before he'd made any films. Is that right? Oh yes. Um, yeah, yeah. So. so it's kind of he's getting his ideas on paper, and from the sound of it, didn't get them on stage in his lifetime. But but you know, you you can see elements of this play have been used in in various films, even with the limited number I've seen. It's, it's interesting, I think, to compare it to Peter von Kant because the, actually the the set looks very similar to. To Peter von Kant, and that's although I, th I think you're, you're right, this is better than Peter von Kant, uh, probably because there's more Fassbinder in it. It's interesting to, yeah, firstly, to see this very early Fassbinder work done pretty much, straight, so to say, done straight, which yeah. is the wrong word, yeah. <laughs> but you know, faithfully. Done, done faithfully, let's go faithfully, yeah, done, done pretty much faithfully. Um, with this slight veneer of kitsch on it, but if you're, but if you're performing, if you're putting on a production of a play, you've got to decide. What tone you're going to take and where, what what era it's going to be set in. So I think that's entirely fair enough. It did feel that he was kind of aping Fassbinder somewhat in in the some of the shot choices and, and so on. Again, and sorry to be begrudging, but you know I was watching Desire last night, yeah, which is one of Fassbinder's 
big flops. Yeah, with Dirk Bogard uh, and Andrea Farrell, based on a Nabokov story with a screenplay by Tom Stoppard. Right, it's one of the few screenplays that uh, Fassbender didn't write himself. So he's really working as a metteur en scène. Yeah, you know, and the film doesn't work. There was a three-hour cut and a two and a half hour cut, and then they had to cut it down to two hours. Yeah, to fulfill the contract. So actually, some bits to me just didn't make sense. But it's gobsmacking. It's got incredible, like, Art Deco set design. The camera is always swirling, kind of, you know, through these glass and mirrors. Bogart is amazing. A tour de force of a performance. It's a real loss that the film isn't better, really. Or that the film doesn't work. But anyway, so, <laughs> you're wondering, where am I going with all this? <laughs> it's just, you know, the, the mise-en-scene is so extraordinary. Right, that then you look at something like water drops on burning rocks, and you go, right? Yeah, yeah, it's fine, but it, it, yeah. and it looks and it looks good and it works and it's cinematic. As you and, say. and I I greatly appreciate having had the opportunity to see it. I love that it exists, but it's an invidious comparison. Yeah, the the other thing that struck me watching it is the way the nudity is filmed in this. Compared to how how Fassbinder, Ozone doesn't have the guts. No, uh, well, it's odd because his previous film, Criminal Lovers, has loads of frontal male nudity. Ah, Um, and this too, uh, the year later, I think, all of the well, all the male nudity is filmed in this very coy way. You you know, it's kind of all framed so that you don't see anything. There's, um, it's odd that the young woman. Has to she she gets completely naked, yeah. and she's she feels more, much more exposed than the men do. There's this ridiculous scene where she's lying on the young man, and they're both naked, and she get she gets up. She's kind of got her her head resting in his uh, crotch, and gets up, and he's he's got this pillow artfully placed over his his genitals. And you just say, oh come on, Fassbinder. A Fassbinder would have had everything hanging out, and it would actually have been Fassbinder doing it. <laughs> um, and he would have been courageous. I mean, there's this um, scene in Germany Year Zero where he's on the phone. Yeah, so it's the middle of the night, he's in bed. Yeah, but he needs to talk to someone about all the political things that are happening at that moment, the terrorists, yeah, plane hijacking, so on. And he, and he calls his friend and he's talking about all these political issues and he's literally stroking himself naked, right? In yeah. a way that actually feels like quite realistic, yeah, like yeah. yeah but also, yeah. you you wouldn't dream of like, kind of getting an actor to do that, much less do it yourself. And yet, it feels so right when he does it, right? Because yeah, yeah. you know he's naked, his boyfriend's there, but it's not as if anyone's seeing him. So he's just like I don't know, scratching, stroking, yeah, like yeah, he's yeah, naked yeah. in bed. The other person isn't seeing it. It feels like completely natural and completely gobsmacking. Yeah, you would not see Ozone do anything like that. No. Neither of the stage productions that I found had any nudity, so presumably there isn't a stage direction, or they, they ignore the stage direction. Um, so Ozone's put that there, but he's chosen to put it there and film it in a way that Fassbinder wouldn't have yeah. filmed it. Yeah. Which is which is which, but it, and the the very odd. It sounds like I'm obsessed with. I'm not saying I'm, I'm obsessed. <laughs> say, I'm not saying I wanted to see all these people naked. Um, it just felt very coy compared to Fassbinder. And the other odd thing is that the one of the posters, I think the French poster, the poster image is the four naked asses of the, well, of what could be the four actors or could be stand-ins, I don't, I don't know. 
but you know he's promote they're they're promoting a film like that, and the film just is very very corny. It's for a film about sex. It's very very corny. And I suppose the thing is, so in defense of Ozone, you know those were probably the conventions of the year two thousand. And he's he's not alone in doing this, right? You may you may be right, and it may be that so criminal lovers, as I say, had had sort of full nudity, but I think it wasn't. I, I don't know how commercially successful it was. This is perhaps an attempt to make a more mainstream film. So yeah. So well, I feel that that dual sense. On the one hand, it's probably the conventions of the time, but on the other hand, the thing with Fassbender is he always broke or exceeded mm -hmm. the conventions of the time. Yeah. Whereas Ozone doesn't. I don't want us to come across as kind of lecherous old men. But on the other hand, I do think that male nudity is a marker in cinema. It really struck me that it's this real cliche that the only person who is completely naked is the young female actress. Yeah. And that's quite a disappointing cliche to see used. I think if, if nobody had been naked, that would have been preferable, I think. Yes. Uh -huh. I, you know, particularly, particularly, I'd say, given how the discussion we had about Fassbinder, and it's like, you know, Fassbinder does it himself. Yes. Um, you know. Yeah. Ozone doesn't. <laughs> doesn't. But then, would have been Senior, is Senior, it? yeah, I think. Would have been Senior. She worked with she worked with Ozone again, so she obviously, uh, you know, didn't, she found the experience fine, presumably. It's so. Ludovine Senior, and she's marvellous. Yeah, um, and she's in, she stars in, she's the lead in Swimming Pool by, by Ozone, so, yeah. Clearly, it wasn't, it wasn't an issue for her, but it, it just feels odd to me. All right. Well, thank you very much for listening. We are thinking aloud about film, and we've been talking about uh, Francois Ozon's adaptation of Fassbinder's Water Drops on Burning Rocks. Thank you very much for listening. Samba Samba die ganze Nacht, tanze Samba mit mir, heute frei Samba uns glücklich macht, Liebe, 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 Leib.